Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ ministry in the United Church of Christ. My guest today is Sana del Corazón, whose spiritual journey spans from born-again evangelicalism to Unitarianism to Unitarians considering Christ, our favorite UCC joke. We discuss coming out and family relationships and what Latinx inclusion in the church looks like. And there's a little bit of Pentecostal pro-wrestling as a treat. Let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Sure. Um, Sana del Corazón and she, they. Wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? So both of my parents were born and raised in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. But I was born and raised here in the States. Ah, yes. Diaspora. That's uh a little bit of my case too. My mom is Boricua um, and she, well, her family was in the military. So actually she was born in the United States too, but moved around. She lived in Panama for a while. Um, and then I think they settled back on the island when she was about 10 years old. So, uh, but I was born in, in Chicago. Um, I don't live there now, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's a little bit of, of my experience. So, so do you have like good memories about Puerto Rico? Like, were you able to visit a lot or maybe just a little bit? Um, I think when I was a kid, we went one time. Um, so I think when I was, I'm trying to think like it's been a while. Um, both of my, so my parents, my dad came because he was an agricultural seasonal worker Mm -hmm. and he ended up staying when he was about 16 um, and that's what his dad did too. And so uh, his dad used to migrate back and forth. And then um, he actually moved to California because we had family um, that were professional wrestlers. <laughs> okay. And, and But then there was an earthquake and now my dad was done with California and never went back. And so he, he was, you know, like he picked fruits and vegetables in New Jersey and they mm-hmm. ended up. Uh, my dad ended up living in Philadelphia and my, my mom was actually born in Ohio, but mm. then my grandmother moved back to the island um, for several years and then settled when my mom was young back in Philadelphia. So my parents both met in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, I went, I didn't go very often. My dad was, you know, like my parents working class and, um, mm-hmm. They had four children. We couldn't afford to go back and forth. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do remember one trip that I was probably around, I don't even know, like, I want to say my sister was born, I believe. So I had to be at least five. And I met my mother's biological father because my mom didn't know her biological father until she was about to get married. She found out that the man she thought was her father wasn't her father. So Mm -hmm. my mom, I think, wanted to visit him and meet him. And so that's, I met him. He was a, he was a Santero and, um, which is a big deal because my family is very Christian. Mm -hmm. So that's really the only memory I have from my childhood going to Puerto Mm -hmm. Rico was that time meeting him and uh, meeting some family out there. But most of my family had, we had a couple of people who were living out in the island, but most of my family had moved. Like my, my dad was one of the first from his sibling set Mm -hmm. to come and he, sort of sponsored everyone, like mm-hmm. everyone moved over. He moved his mother over, all his siblings, there's about, I think six of them. So he helped bring everyone over just because they need work. There was no mm-hmm. work. Um, and this was probably, so I would say this is probably in the 60s and mm-hmm. early 70s when mm-hmm. my my dad and mom both settled in Philadelphia. So that was, and I, they, they met and um, when they were young, they got married. My mother was 17 and my dad was 1920 mm-hmm. and they had four children and we were born and raised in Philadelphia. So that's like really the only 
memory I have uh, mm-hmm. of the island is that that one visit. Um, mm-hmm. But living in Philadelphia, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans. Yeah. So even though um, I didn't go back to the island, there there is a large and uh, still Puerto Rican population in Philadelphia, in North Philadelphia, where I was mm-hmm. raised. And so like I felt very connected to my culture and my people. And honestly, it was because we ended up moving. So we lived in North Philly mm-hmm. and then um, West Kensington. And then we... Um, moved when I was in middle school to like the lower Northeast. And so I went from in, being in a neighborhood that was almost exclusively Puerto, Puerto Rican mm-hmm. to a neighborhood that was very mixed. Like we had all sorts of Asian, all sorts of white, some black families, mm-hmm. um, some Latino families, but, or Latinx families, but they, mm-hmm. you know, not, not necessarily Puerto Rican at that time. Mm-hmm. So that was probably in the late eighties. And, mm-hmm. um, So that was like a little bit of a culture shock. And so what honestly kept me connected is I was very involved in church and my church was very, it was a Spanish speaking, Mm -hmm. Puerto Rican, Pentecostal, evangelical church. Mm -hmm. And that I felt like for me, that, that helped me with my transition when I went to, when we moved to a new neighborhood and I went to a school that was like a magnet school that the kids were from all over, very few, very few um, Puerto Rican students in that school it was like my connection to my church that was mostly Puerto Rican, some other, some, you know, some people from other countries, but primarily like the pastor and all the, all the folks there were uh, Boricua. So that, mm-hmm. that helped me. And it was a Spanish speaking congregation. So that, that was very helpful in like feeling still connected to my parents' roots. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. A really um, like rich tapestry. And, and of course I'm, like my brain focused on this professional wrestling thing. That's, that's <laughs> such a fun. That's... It's kind of hilarious. To say. I mean, he, my, my, so I think it's like one of my father's siblings and cousins and they were mm-hmm. professional wrestlers for a long time. So we, of course, were obviously right. into professional wrestling. I mean, I haven't watched right. professional wrestling in over 30 years, but like, uh, and they were super religious people. So that's, yeah, they mm-hmm. still are. Like, mm-hmm. so they're professional wrestlers and they're like super like Pentecostal evangelical folks. So it's funny. And what were their, because in professional, you get like, they do like the characters and all that, right? And <laughs> Lucha, so. Lucha Libre. I yeah. have no idea. I did not okay. follow any you of that. Follow. If you were going to talk to my brothers, I'm sure they would know. Okay. Because I'm sure my my brother and their children are all into wrestling. I unfortunately did not go down that road. <laughs> so I can't. I don't know. Well, then I, I suppose that we'll just have to simply imagine the combination of professional wrestling and Pentecostal. And exactly. Just, we'll, exactly. We'll let we'll let the listeners um, imagine that. Perhaps draw some fan art um, if anybody's into that. So. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this term Latinx, right? How is it that you personally experience this term or relate to it or perhaps not relate to it? What is your like experience of it? You know, if you would have asked me that question 20 years ago when I was in college, mm-hmm. I think I ha- would have stronger feelings about the term Latinx. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a sociology undergrad. Um, that's That was my major. And my my uh, focus was on race and racism. Mm-hmm. And so and, and I went to Temple. I was I went I got my undergrad from Temple, which is in Philly. And so mm-hmm. like. You know, and my focus was on actually on Puerto Rican studies, Puerto Rican American studies, which is redundant because we're all mm-hmm. American, but like Puerto Ricans in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like as I left Philadelphia, because I, I once, um, let's see, when did I leave? Like, so I did undergrad there and then I went to um, Princeton and did a policy degree, public policy and uh, urban regional studies. And then I went to Smith and did a clinical social work degree a couple of years later. And then I moved to California when I met my spouse Mm -hmm. and um, we moved to Iowa because that's where they're from. Mm -hmm. And so uh, being like I have for the last 20 years been in mostly non in mostly white environments. Mm-hmm. Like it's been, I've been in mostly white spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, 
I don't like even now in Minneapolis. So I live now in Minneapolis. I am now in my third master's program. I'm getting my master's in divinity and mm-hmm. at a UCC seminary. And um, there is one other Latina, which happens to be Lisbeth, uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, who was interviewed. Uh, Lisbeth, remind me, mm-hmm. Lendez. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, and she happens to be Puerto Rican, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're in the Midwest. There's not mm-hmm. a, it's a hybrid program. So there, they, uh, it used to be something like 70, 30, 70 in person, 30 virtual. Now mm-hmm. it's more like 70 virtual, 30 in person. Mm-hmm. So I'm in, in spaces where like, there isn't a lot of Latinos or Latin, mm-hmm. you know, like Latinx mm-hmm. people. And the term Latinx came mm-hmm. sort of after. So I got my undergrad just to age me in two, in mm-hmm. 2000, when Latinx was not really a term yet that people right. used. Right. Um, so that has happened in the last 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have, I, it's a political identity. You know, I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a very like, so I have my undergrad in sociology. I like, I study politics. I've done public policy. It is a very much a political identity. It's a way to group us all together, but the group is so diverse. In mm-hmm. many ways, I feel personally that I have more in common with African-American and Black people as a, mm-hmm. as a Boricua from the East Coast mm-hmm. than I do with someone who is Mexican who lives or, Mex- or Chicano who lives in Texas, because mm-hmm. I have met folks from mm-hmm. like, because I did my first year GW, I had a roommate who was fr- from Lubbock, Texas. We could mm-hmm. not be more different, right? Mm-hmm. But then I made friends who were like, you know, Black people from the Bronx. And I was like, we had, I felt mm-hmm. culturally more, had more in, in common with these folks. But I think it's because Puerto Ricans tend to be, we are very, um, we can look like anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can look, you know, very light skin or we can look very African. I happen mm-hmm. to be somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm like not really light skin and I'm not very dark skin. Mm-hmm. You can tell that I am Latina or Latinx, Mm -hmm. most people would not read me as black, except I did put, I wore, I had braids about a month ago and people Mm -hmm. read me as black. And that was a very interesting experience. Mm -hmm. So anyway, what I'm saying is that like, I get it as a, as a, as a political identity group as, um, but there's so much diversity. I'm not opposed to it. I am opposed Mm -hmm. to it when it's used, when people represent us in ways that I don't agree with, um, mm-hmm. you know, groups that I don't agree with their politics or their views on different issues, you know, mm-hmm. and I just, but again, I see it as, and but I'm like, I'm not offended by it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think it's, you know, if someone were to ask me, uh, you know, to, I generally don't identify a racial identity because I don't have a racial identity. Like we are mm-hmm. not considered a racial category. Mm-hmm. Um, so I usually put none. And if mm-hmm. I'm forced to, I will say black. Mm-hmm. Um, which is funny because my mom is darker than me and her birth certificate says white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what tells you like how irrelevant in mm-hmm. many ways this, ide- this identifier is. Mm-hmm. However, I have a son and I'm raising him with my spouse is white mm-hmm. and my son is, knows that he's a brown boy and we mm-hmm. talk about him being brown and Puerto Rican mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a person of color mm-hmm. and why he, and why he isn't white like my spouse. Mm-hmm. So in our family, we talk a lot about race, uh, Mm -hmm. being a multi-racial, multi, you know, racially complex family. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, but I don't use the word Latinx a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I use it in the spaces like, like the UCC where like in my church, I am the only Latinx person Mm -hmm. in a predominantly white congregation. Yeah. Woo. Um, (laughs) you know, well, but, but, you know, I completely hear what you're saying about how, like it's both a useful term, but also it can be not really specific sometimes. Like sometimes you have to be like more specific about what it actually means. And it was so interesting, like how you're talking about just different ways that that you're read. I have experiences like that on being on being on more of like the super white side. And so I had an experience actually recently, a couple of weeks ago, as of this recording, I was I was somewhere 
and uh, it was like a gathering for a friend of my of my father's who had recently passed away. Um, and so a lot of his friends were there and everything. And I was wearing the shirt that my mom had gotten me. And it says Boricua and it has like an outline of Puerto Rico on it. So I was wearing the, the shirt and I'm being introduced to this this white man. And the first thing he says to me, like he, he kind of looks at me and looks at my shirt and, and he's like, oh, I had a girlfriend who was actually Boricua. And I was like, oh, this is going to be, this is interesting. Um, it like, I had, I took a second, right. To, to, for that to like register. And then I was like, I, I was still enough time for me to respond. Like, oh yeah. Like, like me too. And he's like, oh, you were born on the Island. And I was like, I was like, no, I'm diaspora. And he like, didn't seem to know that word. And so I'm like, my mom is Puerto Like just going into that whole thing. And, and my, my dad was right there and he, like, he jumped in was like, oh, we'll see her mom is like, he's, you know, at the same time saying, well, like trying to, I don't want to say defending because this wasn't really a confrontational sort of exchange. It was just just like a thing that I occasionally get sometimes. But it was just it's very interesting sometimes like like something I'm always very cognizant of is like, how am I being read in different spaces and different situations? And that does shift sometimes for for me, too. And so I think like what you were saying before about how, you know, we we come in, in all colors and we and and a lot of us do sort of have this this like liminal experience of, of like it's hard to you know directly use the categories on like government forms and things like that that are presented to us and then especially when you when you start to ask bigger questions of like what does ancestry like actually mean and just all like all of that plays so much into it but yeah i think i think that like terms like latinx are they they have a very good spirit behind them. They are really trying to be inclusive. And, and I think even with so many of the different individual experiences that a lot of folks who can um, identify into this experience have, there also are many, uh, many common experiences too. There's a lot of diaspora experiences. There's a lot of immigrant experience. And now like all of that can be really different depending on, on the person. But then you know, so that there there can be certain things that that do um, that do unite us. And you were saying before too about like when how you start to have a problem when the term is used as, as sort of like a monolithic way for like diff- like politics and things like that. And I I was thinking of back when the election happened, how mm-hmm. the American news stream was saying oh, talking about oh the Latino vote. Right. Um, and talking about and and really what that was like I think it, there was some article that was talking about the Latino vote um, and all the Trump support in the in the Latino vote, but really it was like Cubans in Florida or like or whatever the specific population was, right. um, and just how how like the the non Latinx American mainstream still wants to have one type of of person who's Latinx or one type of uh, of identity, one type of, um, of racial presentation and, and all of that and how like, and that's, that's part of why, um, on this podcast, I like to emphasize that everybody has like a different experience and and every episode is like sort of pushing against this idea that we are a monolith of, of people, because there's the ways that I navigate the world are not the ways that my cousins who are darker than me would necessarily navigate the world. And that's like so important to have space for, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So then what are some experiences that you have with spirituality and, and religion? You mentioned a little bit of it before, but like, what is your own like faith journey like? Oh, okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> So it's funny. Um, my, I, you know, I don't actually know. It's funny that you, t- I'm thinking about, cause I usually talk a, a lot about my mother's family and I just realized that I really don't know much of my father's family's history with religion or spirituality. Um, they were very, very poor. Uh, and so I just, I don't, I don't know. They probably practice some traditional religion. So my, my grandmother, um, who recently passed in the last couple months um, was a pastor at a Seventh Day Adventist church. She was very religious. Her mother was Catholic, 
very, very Catholic, but Catholic and, you know, and practice Espiritismo. Like that's, mm-hmm. that was very, mm-hmm. which is like very common. Yeah. Um, you know, people practice that very traditional African religion, as well as it was complementary to, to their Catholicism. So she was a very, apparently she was very, a devout Catholic, went to church every day, went to mass, but then my my mother's mother um, left Catholicism and uh, became very involved and was very, very involved in her church. And apparently, and I learned this at her funeral. I mean, I grew up with her, but like we, we, um, when I, when I came out, like my relationship with my family completely shifted, but Hmm. she, um, she was really involved with her community, Elisa Gomez. And she was very like, um, you know, she was, she was all about converting people, all about, you know, saving souls for the Lord. And when I was growing up, my parents initially were also very religious. Um, they belonged to, uh, uh, I don't know if it was Pentecostal, but it was very like conservative, mm-hmm. you know, women had kept their hair long, long skirts kind of, I don't know what it was, but they left when I was young because something controversial happened. And I continued to go to church. Mm-hmm. I was very into church and uh, throughout high school and like my parents didn't force us to go I I just I wanted to go I wanted to attend and I think I and I've talked about this in my as I've entered seminary that for me like I mentioned before that it was for a cultural it's to have it was to have cultural mirroring it's to have being around people like myself because I went to magnet schools starting in middle school so I was always in environments where there weren't a lot of uh Latinos mm-hmm. and so um church was a sort of a safe uh, space, a place where I felt like, oh, I'm around people like me who are, who have the same social class, who have very similar cultural uh, background and, and, and a familiarity that didn't exist in schools where there weren't, weren't like, I think I was in like, I want to say I was in sixth grade. The first time I met a Puerto Rican teacher, um, he was Cuban. Um, and I remember that. <laughs> and um, and I was in college before I actually read something written by a Puerto Rican. So, um, yeah. So anyway, but like uh, in terms of so I, I was I was a born again Christian in high school mm-hmm. and um, I did a lot of converting, saving souls as well. Mm-hmm. And then in college. I started to question my belief system. You know, I, I, I read this book called The Social Construction of Reality uh, mm. by, his name is Peter something, but he, cause he wrote, he's written a book about religion that I recently mm. was like, oh my God, I remember this guy. And that really sort of shattered my world a little bit. Like, okay, like we create all this, we create meaning like this, we make this. And so I slowly started to question like what I had been taught, like the the doctrines and just the belief system and all, all the things. And so I left the church probably when I was about 19. I, I mean, I was right, right, right when I started college and I started looking for other more liberal, more open-minded um, churches. I was still like wanting to be a Christian, but like felt like I needed to be in a place where I could question and that happened to be in predominantly white spaces, mm-hmm. you know, and that it was too much of a cultural shock for me, like to go from a, like a Pentecostal with a full band mm-hmm. <laughs> where people spoke in tongue, where like the pastor's sp- sermon was an hour, like going from this very warm, expressive environment to a more mainline, mainstream church was like mm-hmm. more than I could handle. And and also in a very white environment, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it wasn't, I stopped that search when I was like in my 20s and I started practicing yoga. Like I started practicing yoga in my early 20s and that was a, a, for a long time and I started meditating. It was my spiritual mm-hmm. practice. I have always felt connected to the divine. And so I really, I just, I, I, moving my body in that way helped me stay connected to something greater. And I did a little bit of studying like uh, of Buddhism mm-hmm. and like I went to a couple of places that they, you know, that there, there was, you know, meditation in Buddhist temples and, you know, I dabbled in a lot of different things. Like I mm-hmm. was, you know, always like sort of like trying to figure out like what, what is my belief system? What what is what do I fundamentally value? And so I was I was I, I say I was in the wilderness for like twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, I like was searching for connection for community, 
for meaning. And in that time, so I, what's very much connected to my story is that my parents, once I started dating women, were very upset. And that, mm-hmm. that happened when I was about 21. Thankfully, I wasn't living with them anymore. Mm-hmm. And they were uh, not supportive, still not supportive. Mm-hmm. And they did, um, they rejected me and they condoned uh, condemned, not condoned, mm-hmm. condemned. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and just, uh, we're not like, and they're and at this point now they've returned to church. They, I actually, when I was in high school, brought them back to church my junior year. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, you know, you need to be saved. <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. So they started yeah. coming back. They came back to church when I was about 17 and, um, but they were not supportive at all. Mm-hmm. And that like, and I was pretty close to my family. Um, mm-hmm. My family, like, so I, I have three biological siblings and one sibling that's not biological, but that was raised with us. Mm-hmm. And like, we have a big extended family. Like my, both my parents have many, I think my mom has six siblings. My dad has like six with the same mom and dad and like 20 from, <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe more like my grandfather has 24 kids, my father's fa- wow. father. Anyway, so like mm-hmm. lots of extended family. And when that happened, like that rupture, like mm-hmm. I basically lost my family. Like there mm-hmm. were, like I wasn't a part of their world and it was just too hard. I had been, I had, I was the kind of kid that like just, I, I was a good kid. I was straight A's. I did, I followed all the rules. As you can imagine, mm-hmm. I was, I was more religious than my parents, you know? Mm-hmm. And when that happened, they, uh, my world was shattered and our relationship wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. I struggled for a long time for like, te- I say there was like a decade that I did it. It was touch or go whether or not I was going to survive their rejection. Mm-hmm. And then at one point I was like, I need to live my life. Like I cannot, I cannot like, I, I, I realized that I was waiting for sort of them to die. My parents were young parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my parents are only in their sixties. Um, like for me to continue to live my life. So I decided like, you know what? Like I, I know I want to be married. I know I want to have children And that year I got together with, would become my wife and she, or they are Unitarian Mm -hmm. Universalist or were Unitarian Universalist. So, uh, and also a very spiritual person, they grew up Unitarian Universalist. So we started Mm -hmm. attending uh, and I had in the past, I had gone to UU churches, but they're so white. So I just, I couldn't do it. But now it was like, well, now I have a white partner. So like, so I wasn't going to take them to like, you know, where was I going to take them? Like there's mm-hmm. very limited um, places that are, uh, you know, open and affirming and, mm-hmm. and for people of color. I mean, you have to mm-hmm. live in Chicago or there, there exists in Philly, but I don't know if any Latino uh, open and affirming congregations in Philly. Um, you, you have to live in New York, you know, like there's very specific places that you can find that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at the time when we got together, we were living in Oakland. Then we moved to Iowa and we, and, in Des Moines, Iowa, we found, we, we became members of a UU congregation. We were members there three or four years, mm-hmm. which was great. It was a great, you know, church. Um, and I felt very at home and it was like, and being in a place that was accepting of my family was amazing. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me was like good enough. And then we moved to New Jersey because Gina uh, started a PhD program at Princeton and um, we joined another UU church there. But after a year, I was like, yeah, I'm too Christian for these people. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I need some Jesus in my life. And they weren't, they were, you know, unlike the first church who the pastor was an atheist, this church, this pastor, the minister was a theist, not mm-hmm. a Christian, but a theist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just was like, I, I can't do it. So I, we ended up visiting a church in Philly that it is queer led. The pastor is a lesbian. The music minister is a transgender person and queer. And, mm-hmm. and I love, I fell in love. I fell in love with the church. Mm-hmm. It was a white church. It's still predominantly a white church. Um, and that was about three years ago. And that was when the first time I had into a UCC, um, United Church of Christ Church, and so um, yeah, it's been it's been an adventure. So now I, it's been like twenty years since I've hadn't been a Christian, and mm-hmm. so in two thousand nineteen, I went you know I went back. I feel like I finally kind of made my my way home. Mm-hmm. And then about two years ago, when the pandemic started, um, I had always felt a calling to ministry, 
but I didn't know like Mm-hmm. You well first I was like I don't belong to it I'm not a member of a church I'm not a part of a denomination you know and so I'm like what what would I do you know so I even when I went to uh, social work so I, I went to social work school in 2008 my essay to the social work school is I really should be going to seminary but I'm not connected to a denomination or a religion mm-hmm. so I think Jesus was a social worker so I'm gonna do yeah. this. <laughs> So at the very minimum, he was, he cared about people's, you know, physical health, mental well-being. You know what I mean? He was trying Mm -hmm. to heal. And if I, if, if, if the work of healing is what I need to do, then, then maybe this is the way, the avenue to do it. Mm -hmm. So I went to social work school in 2008 instead of seminary. But in 2020, when um, pandemic happened, I get my cards read once a year. Mm so red and the tarot person was like so why aren't you in seminary like you had the call <laughs> mm-hmm. like and I was like well and I gave her all the reasons I was like well you know I told God that you know like I needed to be a part of a congregation and I and they need to be like yes you should be in seminary you know like I felt like mm-hmm. all these things needed to be in place mm-hmm. and she's like no and I was like okay <laughs> so then I just happened to find this this, this um the seminary I go to United Theological Seminary is mm-hmm. virtual like you can do it's a hybrid model so you could do you could go to school without actually being in person so I was like you know let me just take a couple of classes let me mm-hmm. let me just enroll and do um and so here I am in my second year just finishing up my second year and feeling the call to, to ministry not sure what that is going to look like for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I am still a member of this UCC church, uh, Tabernacle United Church in Philadelphia because of COVID, because mm-hmm. we, we've been in a pandemic. They've been virtual for almost two years. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, my pastor, Pastor Katie Akins, is on going on uh, sabbatical for three months. And I'm actually in a couple of days moving to Philadelphia for the summer to mm-hmm. do pulpit supply. I'll be preaching and pastoring, ministering there for her for three months, I'll be back in Philly. So it's kind of a, so there, there I am. I have no idea. I have started the process of becoming um, ordained in the United Church of Christ, but I mm-hmm. have, you know, no idea uh, what'll come of it. I still not, mm-hmm. not sh- completely sure because um, most uh, pastors uh, or ordained folks of color in the UCC denomination pastor white churches and that mm-hmm. not an interest of mine. Right. Even though I am going to be ministering <laughs> to mm-hmm. my church, which is predominantly white, mm-hmm. um, we, we're probably about ten percent folks of color. Mm-hmm. So that might mean that I will be starting a church myself or mm-hmm. doing something else. God knows, I don't know. But here, here yeah. I am. That is quite quite a journey and and quite a ride. Um, you know, I was just like ta- taking notes on just a lot of a uh, lot of different things. So, you know, when you were talking about how, you know, you followed all the rules with, yes. with your, you know, you were, a, you were a good Christian girl, right? I like, was, I was a I, good girl. I'm not yeah. just a good Christian. I was a good yeah. girl. Yeah. No sex before marriage, no drugs, none of it. I relate to that so hardcore <laughs> because, because same, like I like purity culture. I um, now I, I had an experience where like my, my mom, I got to a certain age where she stopped making me go to church, mm-hmm. but she still kind of put a lot of pressure on for me to choose to go to church. Mm. Um, so my experience with the more like conservative side of Christianity is, is that a lot of it was more my choice to Mm -hmm. engage with as opposed to like many other people's stories where like they didn't have the choice to begin with. So like all the purity culture rules, I was like, this makes so much sense and it's so logical and I'm just going to be really good at this. (laughs) Um, And it was easy because number one, I was not boy crazy. Like, uh, you know, all of my friends were. So it was like, okay, like, why is it hard for people to like, just not have sex before marriage? (laughs) Like, like, I'm sitting here, like, I'm just going to like watch anime or whatever. And like, why is it so difficult to just like be like, and then, and then also like, people were not coming after me in high school. Like I, I was not like <laughs> the type that a lot of people were trying to pursue. So it was really, it was really easy to keep up that morality that like, yeah. you know, has all of these like stipulations of 
what type of physicality is is okay or not okay. So I I got to like get all of the theory like embedded um, into me and then just know like not to do that as opposed to being confronted with like actual relationship situations that I like didn't know how to navigate. I I sort of like got all of that and was like, great, I'll just completely avoid all of that (laughs) Um, and just simply not not do any anything like that. I think for me, I don't know how much it's funny. I don't know how much the church's culture around like purity, like I, you know, I hear people now, I follow someone who does a lot of, it's a Christian woman. He, I don't even remember the name of, it's a parenting group she, uh, she does. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a parenting forward, I think it's called parenting forward anyway, but it's a lot of people who were, who grew up fundamentalist evangelical and with the purity culture. And I, for me, I, it I don't think it had a strong influence on me to be honest, because I was, the smart, I was a smart kid mm-hmm. and my, I was like, I was like a straight A student. And like, yep. I had my family, even though my parents are both working class, they were a part of unions. My, my mother's three older brothers were college educated mm-hmm. and the expectation was that I was going to go to college. So there was a lot of incentive for me not to have sex. Like mm-hmm. for me, it was like, I'm not getting pregnant. That's just right. not going to happen because mm-hmm. it will change the trajectory of my life. Mm-hmm. And it took me, honestly, like I spent a year, I've had much, many different work experiences and I didn't have, I know now the very typical experience of a Puerto Rican girl in North Philly with mm-hmm. working class parents. I spent a year working for Planned Parenthood after I graduated from um, college mm-hmm. and I was teaching sex ed. And there were lots of young girls getting pregnant mm-hmm. um, in the public school system. And I mean, I'm talking about sometimes middle school or, you know, mm-hmm. and I know that the number has gone down and up and we can talk mm-hmm. about abortion, and all that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> um, but I recognize that these girls, that they did not have the same incentive that I did. They did not Mm -hmm. have the family that I did. They don't Mm -hmm. have the, and they have like, for some of them, becoming pregnant was a way to become an adult and independent and be able to Mm -hmm. take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I really, I recognize that, that there was privilege for me, even as I had working class parents, I, I took in some sort of middle-class values. I had doors open for me because I had stability in my home, because I had mm-hmm. parents that paid attention, because I had parents that expected a certain behavior from me. Mm-hmm. And, and I was in systems that people thought of me as like intelligent and worthy and like, and who was, was going to make something of herself, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, I recognize, so for me, like it really, I don't think the church in terms of like, it didn't have that. I mean, clearly, cause when I left the church, it did not have that, uh, level of influence. I've sort of always been independent and I didn't even think about like coming out. This is the other thing mm-hmm. coming out when I was in church, it didn't even like, I knew gay people. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, I had an aunt who, who is gay and, uh, and was sort of out, I knew she had like these pretty girlfriends, but I didn't, mm-hmm. like, I just, I didn't like, it's not something we talked about in my house really. And I don't mm-hmm. honestly remember the topic. I remember there would be rumors about people being gay or whatever, but I don't remember like a strong condemnation of it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when I was aware of my attraction to females, mm-hmm. I, there was no struggle. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm a child of God. Like there was no struggle for me. And I know that that's rare, but mm-hmm. for me, I would, I felt, I feel like I was so, I, I knew I was a good person. I knew God loved me. And I knew that this was of God. There was just mm. no doubt in my mind. There was just, I, there was no doubt in my mind. The struggle was all with my family. Like mm-hmm. the struggle wasn't internal. The struggle mm-hmm. was, I'm going to live my truth. Now mm-hmm. can you live with my truth. Mm-hmm. This is my truth. I did. I did not, you know. And so, for me, like, like I had to deal with the rejection externally. Mm-hmm. I knew, like, internally, I'm, I'm like, I'm good. I'm good with God. I'm mm-hmm. good. I have done all the right things. I am a good person. I, you know, worship God. I help people. I, you know, like, I believe the right things. I do the right things. I know I'm powerless. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. but it's these people, they are not, how, how do you call that loving? Mm -hmm. How is that loving? Like, Mm -hmm. and it almost broke me because Mm -hmm. is these people who, 
for my parents who I thought and my family, not just them, because my extended family, basically my parents and my family are like the saints. <laughs> they're mm. the good people in the family. They're the ones that help other people. And they're like, I always say my mom is Santa Ana. Um, mm-hmm. Like she's a saint. And so mm-hmm. nobody crossed them. Nobody was like, except, uh, except the white people that married into my family. So nobody crossed them. Nobody like was like, yo, like, you know, this is your daughter. You have to love her unconditionally. Like you need to support her. No, Mm -hmm. only like only my aunt Jennifer, my Jewish aunt Jennifer, who was married Mm -hmm. to my uncle or Mm was, um, was the one that was like, no. Like mm-hmm. you, you're wrong, you know? And mm-hmm. so, yeah. Anyway, that's a long way of just saying, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well that, I mean, first of all, like what a blessing though, that you had that sense of like security in your own self, because then you had to to deal with all, all of the external stuff. I, I mean that, like, like you said, that is, um, sometimes that is a bit of a, of a rarer experience. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I know like, like for, for me, my mom definitely was not accepting, um, at first, I think now she's more in a place of like, like we don't talk about it a lot, but she's much more in a place of like, she's, she'll ask me questions to genuinely understand mm-hmm. as opposed to like when I first uh, came out to her where it was more, it was much more defensive mm-hmm. of like, you know, th- this is wrong and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, but for me, it, it did take me like, like I was so heavily repressed that like I had to have moments of like realizing it within myself. And when I did realize it within myself, I had already gotten into a place where like I was ready to be accepting of it. And, and so by the, by the time I realized it in my own self, um, this was like over 10 years ago now, I was like, okay, like I, I'm cool with this. Most of my friends, all my like college friends were really supportive of it. So like I was, you know, fine there. And then really just the big thing was like, there's a couple family members that, that was like the anxiety was, it was like you said, it's, it's the other people who have either politics or theologies that condemn that. And I think I feel like I've said this a lot on on the podcast, and it's it's either the nature of of the show and the kinds of people that c- come on the show. But I I just always get back to like I feel like so many queer folks study theology in some sort of academic sense, or, or we feel such a strong pull to to it. And I think part of it is to um, to defend ourselves um, and to you know, in, in addition to also like having these genuine, um, you know, spiritual experiences too. And Mm -hmm. and so, you know, I just, I I find that sort of like a recurring theme. A lot of folks that come on here um, have that experience and and it's beautiful um, that, that, you know, we can, we can all, all bring that. And you you were talking about how you were, you were, you were part of the, the uh, Unitarian church. And so I have heard this joke. I don't know if it's a really common joke, but I think it's a pretty funny joke that, (laughs) UCC stands for Unitarians, Unitarians Considering, Considering Christ. Christ. Yes. Yes. yes, 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 yes. We used to say that before we were Unita- uh, UCC. We, <laughs> I, we used to, we made that joke. Um, I want to, so I want to say that um, I think a lot of people, a lot of, um, at least my queer friends who are Christian and who don't have faith communities because they're not comfortable going into predominantly white spaces or mm-hmm. or non or spaces that don't have a lot of people that look like them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I happen because of my because of the person I married. Um, and typically that what's funny is like I've noticed this even in UU spaces, UCC spaces, most people of color are there is because they have a white partner. Like mm. that is that I told my wife, I'm like, that's mm. the common denominator here. Like mm-hmm. they have to go to a place where first they both can, you know, spiritually are aligned, but mm-hmm. you know, they go because that would not necessarily be my first choice. And if I'm completely mm-hmm. honest, right. Um, but there aren't that many spaces that are truly diverse. Mm-hmm. What I appreciate about my particular churches, they really try to decenter whiteness as best as they can. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole, like we can have a whole conversation about that. It is the reason why I am in seminary. I think we are, there is 
you know, now that we are in this the last 20 years doing queer theology, Mm -hmm. you know, that people have been studying and have, you know, unpacked this, you know, anti-gayness in the, in the church, you know, so many of us are looking for a home. So many of us are looking for places where we feel accepted and seen as our full selves, as our beloved self. Mm -hmm. And, and so part of what I think I'm called here to do is to help create those spaces for queer people of color uh, who Mm -hmm. want to be Christian or who want to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so like, I feel I'm excited about that possibility of like, creating a space that is truly like that starts from a place of diversity and like that Mm -hmm. isn't um that doesn't prioritize whiteness which most Mm -hmm. churches do most mainline progressive open and affirming churches do they center Mm -hmm. whiteness that's that and that's actually what i'm studying in seminary right Mm -hmm. now like Mm -hmm. yes i'm you know studying all this stuff but my interest specifically is like why don't we have diversity in churches why why can't we have diversity as churches how do we address whiteness how do we address Mm -hmm. white supremacy how do we uh address uh you know anti-racism um and and all that all that stuff Mm -hmm. that exists in the church Mm -hmm. and if we can't do it in the church how do we expect to do it in the world Mm -hmm. that's like my big i'm like if we are not doing this work in church then how can we expect this to 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 happen in the world when we have you know the greatest commandment we when we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves yet Mm -hmm. and still we cannot be together in church and really see each other for uh, uh, in our fullness right Mm -hmm. so yeah I'm sorry I I I just want you're fine yeah (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you're you're fine this is great and it just one thing that I've just been thinking about I mean since starting this podcast since getting involved with Encuentros Latinx and all all these things just sort of an ongoing big question for me is what does a Latinx church look like? Because I'm in, I'm in the UCC and, and, you know, you're saying like, yeah, you're the only one in in your congregation. Me too. As, as far as I, as I'm aware, I don't want to assume because I don't know everybody's, you know, I don't know everybody's identity. And there's sometimes there's not a a way, a way to tell my name isn't in Spanish. I, Mm -hmm. I don't have an, like there's different things where like, I have an experience of people don't know unless I say it. So I have to choose not to silence my own, like my own full self. And that that's like a whole journey that I've, that I've been on, but I still have this, like just this ongoing, like, you know, what does it look like? And and part of what we're trying to do with Encuentros Latinx and then more broadly with the Colectivo in UCC is like gathering us together because so, so many of us are like, yeah, it's, it's, we're the only ones in the congregation. And then, and then like, for me, it's like, well, if I'm, effectively the only one in my congregation what does it even look like to make not to like make my church or or bring bring more like latinidad to my congregation whatever that might even mean when i myself have an experience of being so assimilated and actually Mm -hmm. i can feel really comfortable in like you know mainline types of of worship services and and so there's like all of that that i have going on too but you know, I know like next to my church, I think we're getting like a new uh, Mexican restaurant. And so that's going to bring in, uh, you know, people and we're we're in a very walkable area. Like it's a pretty big road and it's a very walkable neighborhood. So a lot of people go by the church mm-hmm. and, you know, they, they'll see anything that that we have up. And so that, the restaurant, I don't think is is there yet, but it's just like, OK, like the changes to the neighborhood around the church. Mm-hmm you know, we, how are we going to really respond to that? And I, and I, I'm not at a place where I feel like I can go to my congregation's consistory and be like, we should do X, Y, Z to be like more inclusive of Latinx population. Cause like, I don't want to like speak to that. I don't want to be the authority, like any sort of authoritative, like voice of what that looks like, because, you know, one, one thing somebody somebody might think is like, oh, okay, so to be more inclusive of of Latinx populations have multilingual services. My first language is English. My Spanish mm-hmm. is like, I can read and write better than I can speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my comprehension, it depends on what the conversation is. Sometimes I like really understand a lot of what's going on. And then when there's different topics, I can just be a little bit lost. And so you know, it, it would be a little bit weird to be like, oh, well, Taylor, you're the you're the Latinx person. So clearly we must have <laughs> we must have services in Spanish. I would love actually to have a multilingual like Spanish services so that I can like practice my like being more entrenched in it. But yeah. but that's not something that, that I can be like a leader on, you know, and, and so it's sort of like being the only one in the congregation is like it's such a weird place to be mm-hmm. um, in terms of like how you 
how you even go about um, trying to bring that into a congregation that would be really receptive to that. But then just like, how do you, you know, how do you even navigate that? I, you know, I, so it's funny that the, I don't know if I see myself necessarily leading a Latino or Latinx congregation. Mm -hmm. I am not a first generation person. Like there is, you know, Mm -hmm. Reina Reina Ramos has the experience that she immigrated. She's mm-hmm. very tied to her country and her her services are all in Spanish. And I had that experience as a child. Like as a mm-hmm. child, you know, the services were in Spanish. And I was, I actually, when I was in high school, pushed them to do English services so I could bring my non-Puerto Rican friends to church. Mm-hmm. So I, once a month, they agreed that a youth-led service was going to be in English. We were going to have English mm-hmm. songs and we were going to have, um, and for me, it was a matter of like, our church is in a black neighborhood. Why aren't black people here? Right. And so mm-hmm. for me, it felt like it was irresponsible of the church to have only Spanish speaking churches because we were not welcoming to the people that lived literally right there where we were, where the church building was. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, look, I, I'm, I'm committed to my Spanish. My son goes to a bilingual school. We chose mm-hmm. a school where there's 60% Latino in a, in Minneapolis where, you know, there is diversity, but it is still the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's, those things are important to me, but I also recognize that, you know, in those schools, there's a, a huge cultural difference as to me who I am. There's not a lot of Puerto Ricans there. And mm-hmm. like just where I where I am right now, where I came from, North Philly to now, where I'm like on my third master's mm-hmm. degree, you know, like I'm in a really different space. Most mm-hmm. of those people are first generation people who have just come to this country. And, you know, it's it's a really different experience. Mm-hmm. And so I've 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 been thinking about that. Like I don't I don't imagine a I imagine a multicultural church, but mm-hmm. I don't imagine necessarily a Latinx church and Mm -hmm. not that it does it's not going to happen I I won't ever say never because I did Mm -hmm. say I was not ever I was not dating a white person here I am a married (laughs) one so I never say never anymore because God Mm -hmm. is in charge and so I I don't say those things but I don't see myself um Mm -hmm. doing that necessarily and so I don't know I mean there is you know there is like you know, Latinx churches that are like first generation. Mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, I have friends who live in Boston and New York who are part of multicultural churches who are second, third generation. I think it's, you know, it's like, right, like you, like you said, assimilation. I say that and I will say, so I am involved in my church. Uh, I'm on the church council and uh, the church you know, has been a small church for a very long time. It used to be a huge mm-hmm. church. It'd be like a thousand members. Now it's like 70 members because mm-hmm. my church is a uh, Presbyterian and UCC. So they're a, uh, they're a uh, un- uh, two denomination church, which is very common in UCC. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, we, I've been talking about, I want this church to get be bigger. I want it to be more diverse. And there, we have a lot of people like the, the few people of color that exist in the, t- um, in the church are in leadership. So we're overrepresented. Mm-hmm in leadership. Mm-hmm. But I think that I think about what it would take, even my church, who where mm-hmm. we have the right theology, where we are liberation theology, we use a lot of black theology. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we have, we, I feel like we believe and do the right things yet. And still I am hesitant to like, think of bringing people of color into my church mm-hmm. because we need to deal still with how whiteness is centered, even mm-hmm. as we try to decenter it, you know, mm-hmm. we need to deal with like white comfort and like mm-hmm. what happens when a, when a space is predominantly white. Like mm-hmm. I, and so I had a meeting with uh, the other leaders of color and we were talking about different ways that whiteness shows up in our church mm-hmm. and they, you know, and I said, the reality is that all of you are comfortable in this white space. Like, like mm-hmm. I'm the newest member in this group where there was about six of us, six, six mm-hmm. women of color. And I'm like, I don't want to ever get comfortable because mm-hmm. I don't, I want like that. And that's, I want to always feel like, okay, like I can, I need to think about other, you know, churches. The reason churches has a hard time, in my opinion, white churches have mm-hmm. a hard time changing is that whiteness is a very specific culture and it's about comfort and people mm-hmm. don't want to change the way they worship. They don't, I mean, no, no people, not just white people. People don't want to change the way they worship. They want to be in church and it'd be comfortable and, and easy. 
And and I don't think that what, that's what church is. Church is supposed to be about transformation. It's about discomfort. It's about evolving. That's what Jesus and God wants us to do. And so I am hesitant. I will say like, and God knows this is probably the, the, the ministry that I'll go into is like, I don't know if we're going to be able to make white spaces multicultural. We already know from the research that when people of color go into white spaces, they have to compromise way more. They, it, it costs them way more than white people. And mm-hmm. so I think spaces need to start multicultural. And mm-hmm. even those spaces, at some point, white people leave. Like this has been studied, right, already. Mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking about this, like how do we make this work? How, do, how did the first century folks make it work? How did Paul mm-hmm. make it work when he was, he was ministering to churches that were diverse and they were fighting? They were fighting mm-hmm. because of the diversity, mm-hmm. you know? And so... Um, yeah, it's something that I think about all the time as as I, I feel this call to ministry and figuring out what, what kind of church, what is the church of the future? What is the church? Mm-hmm. What does the church of the future look like? Um, so anyway. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Well, it's it's a lot and it's it's a big task, but I agree with you that it's it's totally an important task. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that like yeah, there's there's no easy or clear answer to it and it's mm-hmm. really going to depend on like what a specific congregation is is like and there, there's so many factors that go into it. it it's really hard to like people want actionable steps or like things they can ways that they can change the order of of service or like the types of music that they use and like they there's sort of that that temptation of like what's the you know low-hanging fruit right. that some some of the easier things that you can begin to change i know my church has you know a little bit started to just use more um like not necessarily like we still do a lot of the hymns uh like the old the old hymns and they're they're great like i personally love love a lot of them um but then there's i've noticed like a little bit of a, of an increase in just different like videos that we'll play like people outside of our of our church like youtube videos or whatever right. other christian groups make resources that can be used in worship. We we've had a lot of different videos from more, you know, led by black folks, led by just different things. So like so like the white churches don't have to reinvent the the wheel, right? There's there's existing resources that people have already created and put out there. And but I don't know, I don't know. I'll be I, I'm going to say this. So yeah. I so I I did a sermon about how the organ is the whitest instrument in the church. And I don't visit, I shouldn't say that because I recently visited mm-hmm. two churches that have organs and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God. Um, <laughs> uh, but we have very contemporary music. My, We are blessed with someone who is just uh, anointed and does contemporary. We, not that Pax doesn't um, look at some of the, the hymn, hymnals, but like for the most mm-hmm. part, it's very contemporary worship. Mm-hmm. That's just the dressing. Like, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, like, we have a reckoning to do, you know, the UCC is committed, they 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 did this survey, they just, um, like, a year ago or two, they they got some consultants, because they see the numbers, they see, mm-hmm. they're like, we are committed to racial justice, why don't we have people of color in our churches? Mm-hmm. How, yep. what is wrong, you know, mm-hmm. and I believe just the same way that we have a reckoning to do in this country, that we that we there, there is we need to have a fundamental shift and it is hard work it is interpersonal work it's not mm-hmm. just the songs we sing or mm-hmm. the hymns or the prayers it's yes all that stuff does matter don't get me wrong because mm-hmm. i do not like going to church with an organ and i do not like a church where there's like all the hymns i like that i didn't grow up with that and so it's mm-hmm. culturally like it doesn't feel comforting mm-hmm. and i am still in a white church where a lot of the service doesn't feel comforting but Mm -hmm. uh you know i think that there is some real you know real interpersonal work that needs to happen with white people around how they relate to people of color and Mm -hmm. it can start in the church it can Mm -hmm. but we i mean like we need to really address that like the christian Mm -hmm. the white christian church has to really reckon with white supremacy and all mm-hmm. that happened in the name in the, that the church supported for mm-hmm. centuries and still mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So yes, all those things are important to make people feel comfortable, but like, I think the work is like serious, you know, 
interpersonal, serious, like, you know, uncomfortable stuff Mm -hmm. that like people don't see, people don't see themselves doing that work at church. But I ask myself, if not there, where? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I completely uh, agree with you because of, of all the spaces where this type of discourse happens, the church is maybe the most graceful space where it can happen. And what I mean by that is like, in like the values of secular progressivism, which is very much um, has many of the, of the same goals, dismantling white supremacy um, and and, you know, challenging and changing and, and upending all, all of these structures. What I notice a lot, especially when this discourse takes place on the Internet, on Twitter, on social media, there can be a real lack of grace for folks that mess up like say say the wrong thing or they're they're not quite there with whatever the the value or the belief is and this is not to excuse people from saying like really problematic and harmful things like that absolutely should be called out but sometimes there there can be this this attitude of of like being really uncharitable and ungraceful toward people that like that aren't there yet. And so you can't actually have a transformative conversation on Facebook or on or on Twitter or anywhere because I think that secular progressivism lacks a concept of grace and forgiveness that is present within Christianity. And so when you have like progressive Christian spaces that have that being being that they are Christian spaces, combining that with the the work of like having like being being uncomfortable being comfortable with being uncomfortable and doing that interpersonal work there can be that baseline of having grace and and thinking like not not to say that you know the marginalized folks should always have to be present in certain conversations where where you know white people are really unpacking uh their their own whiteness like sometimes you know that that does need to be done in a in a space that is um, that is away for, or a space that the people of color don't necessarily have to be present for that. If that's not you know like that that's totally valid and and fine and you know necessary in, in a lot of cases. But I, I just find that the most the most substantial work that I've seen done in all of those directions has been in the church mm. versus in like internet discourse yeah Um, I mean yeah that's it see that the thing is I think the change has to happen in relationships Mm -hmm. in connections and I'm like it's you know obviously like we're in 2022 and you know like the internet especially for the pandemic and COVID like the internet is a big part of our world and lots of people find community virtually Mm -hmm. and I get that and like Mm -hmm. it was a part it was a necessity for two years and I struggle with that as so like for me, what I have found in, I think, you know, I tell myself it's a blessing that I wasn't a part of the church for 20 years. And then I'm opening the Bible for uh, like a fresh from you that I like, I'm able mm-hmm. to look at scripture in a really different way and like really trying and being called to like, how can I use this source, this source that really has shaped our country? Mm-hmm. And how do I use this to like guide my life? I'm, and that that's something I'm personally working on because I mm-hmm. haven't seen it that way but I think that like you were on point when you were saying about like the forgiveness that Christian spaces can Mm -hmm. provide that other progressive spaces don't necessarily I think one of the things I've taught like today I I preached (laughs) at my church about like we profess a countercultural love we are Mm -hmm. We are not, we are not like, we do not want to follow the ways of this world, of this world where, you know, and I'm not going to like where we are quick to, to tell somebody they're wrong and not be willing to be in conversation with them. Like mm-hmm. one of the things I found, find so powerful with the UCC is that, that we're a covenantal denomination. Relationships mm-hmm. matter. Like, mm-hmm. I think what, what we, when we say we're covenantal, it's like we're committed to being in relationship with each other. 
right? Mm-hmm. And that that is that is like the most important as God is in relationship with us, we are in relationship with each other. So we need to learn and grow together. And forgiveness is just required. That's just part of like who we are, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's we've been forgiven and like we forgive others, right? And we cannot be like just quick to like call people out and to I mean, I even struggle with this in my my particular seminary. We have a lot. It's a seminary that was was historically Christian, but now definitely is less Christian than it was. It's UCC, it's ecumenical, but mm-hmm. like there's a lot of people who were hurt by the church, who were evangelicals mm-hmm. and now not connected to church at all. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of people with trauma. It's very challenging for me as someone who's coming back to Christianity, trying mm-hmm. to deconstruct and reconstruct to be in that space of people who are really who've been traumatized by and Mm -hmm. who've been hurt. And like, that's real. And I have to like respect that. And Mm -hmm. I hope that I can help be a part of helping people heal from that, you know? Mm -hmm. But how do, you know, how do we like help build these spaces that are safe spaces for people to grow and for us to heal at, Mm -hmm. you know, in our congregations, in our communities, in our nation, you know? And so like, Yeah. So I agree with you. And I think that you're right. Like we are, this is where it can happen. Not that it can't happen outside, but this is where at least what we profess our values, we should be able to help us evolve and and grow and and become those spaces, those open, those loving, those Mm -hmm. spaces that they're not about uh, domination and Mm -hmm. and all the oppressive forces that are in this world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, so where can people keep up with, um, with, with me, you, your oh work? Yeah. Well, so I, you know, so I, so I'm a trained therapist. I've been, I do coaching right now. Um, and I just finished being, um, trained as a spiritual director. I've been a full-time mom for gosh, I guess technically going back to school, but I've been a full-time, my kid is eight years old. Um, Mm -hmm. and I just, I just, I started doing, um, some coaching groups. I do individual coaching. Um, and I'm going to do, I'm going to be taking spiritual, uh, direction clients as well. So in, while I'm still in seminary, I have two more years of seminary. God is still Mm -hmm. working on me, figuring out what's next for me. I do have a website, sanadelcorazon.com. Uh, it's my name, S-A-N-A, Del Corazon, of the heart, D-E-L. By the way, we uh, we came up with that name. It's a name that we, when we got married, we made it up, but from the okay. heart. So D-E-L-C-O-R-A-Z-O-N.com. Um, you can find me there. You can contact me. I just put that up to, you know, like I just created that website mm-hmm. in the last couple of months, mm-hmm. hoping to start seeing folks more regularly. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am a trained therapist, but not currently licensed, but I do coaching I've been uh, trained as a trauma-informed therapist. I hope to actually do that work, the work of helping people who um, have religious trauma and need, you know, and like, because therapists are not trained around religion. They're not, they don't do the work themselves mm-hmm. and, they, and they don't know how to work with people who have religious trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so people can find me there. I, I do writings. I post, I will be posting sermons, you know, so all, all the stuff, all the good stuff is there. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on, for just sharing all of all this with us. This was uh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.